My name is Bob, and I'm an addict. And the topic of this workshop, you never have to use again. I'm not going to tell you a whole bunch of stuff. I'm going to tell you my story, which will reveal to you why you never have to use again. You know, I'm going to try not to spend a lot of time in the insanity of active addiction because I don't like to do that shit. You know, I lived it. I don't need to talk about it. You're an addict like me. You lived it. I will tell you this. In 1942, I was born as a product of an interracial relationship. And in those days in Detroit, Michigan, that was a lynching offense. So Bob ended up in an orphanage. And I was adopted at the age of two. And from that point in time, I lived with a loving family, first in Dayton and then in Cleveland, Ohio, where I was raised. They did the best they could for me. They were good Christian folk. They tried to raise me in the right way. And I'm one of those people, it's not written in our language anywhere, but I believe a lot of us, and me included, are born with this disease. You know, we have it from the womb. It's not that I jumped out the womb with a syringe in my hand. But the thinking and the concepts and the distorted ideas about who I was and how I saw life started at an early age. I was a very seclusive child, uh, precocious, learned how to read before I went to school, first by looking at pictures in the encyclopedia, loved those color graphs, those color plates with the animals and all that stuff. I'm one of them guys that could read a National Geographic, and I would be in Afghanistan. I'd be riding a camel. I'd be gone. You know, see, I could, I, I could isolate just in my mind. You know, I, uh, I was given everything that I could possibly be given to have a good life, a good education, a career, all of those things. But you see, what I was always attracted to was different than what I had. If my mother, my stepmom, told me to sit down, I stood up. If she said it was daylight, I would swear to God, it's midnight. See, I was contrary and obstinate and different. And if I wasn't different, I tried to be different. And what attracted me, you know, i got to tell the truth. When I was a kid... I went to school religiously. Uh, I used to get those awards for perfect attendance. I used to get good grades. I got those grades like, my lowest grade was like a B minus. I'd get A's and B's. That's on the academic side. But if you look on the other side of the report card, and I saw some of these when I went back to making amends, deportment does well with others. Gets along well with his peers, does well under supervision, all you, unsatisfactory. You know those little notes your teacher would write to your parents at the bottom of the report card? There'd be like three or four for each little grading period, different color inks. They all said the same thing. Mrs. Stewart, your son does not pay attention. Mrs. Stewart, your son is constantly disrupting the class. And then it had that classic quote. Mrs. Stewart, your son is not living up to his potential. I was always an underachiever. I took that game to the street. 
You know, I'm also one of those kids that one side of me, there's a dichotomy of Bob. One side, I wanted to be the good son, the good student, and do the right thing. But see, when I'd leave the house, the shirt would come out of my pants, my hat would get kicked, kicked ace deuce, and I'd be talking out the side of my neck. You see, because I had a mother that said, you don't use that kind of language in the house. You speak proper. I come from, I don't know if anybody here understands what a bougie household is, but I come out of one of them. You know, if you know what Jack and Jill, back in those days, the 40s and 50s, the bourgeoisie of the black community had these social clubs called Jack and Jill. And they had these cotillions. But I went to one of them cotillions one time and like to tore it up. I was so loaded. And they said, we don't want that boy here ever again. So that killed all my career with Jack and Jill. See, I was beginning to take on that role of insane behavior. I went in the Air Force. My parents finally said after, see, I picked up my first chemical when I was 11 years old. came in a bottle. We used to call it pluck, you know. And uh, it made me feel different. I don't know about anybody else, but I always had this queasiness, uneasy feeling inside of me that I just, wasn't, I just wasn't making the mark. I couldn't do what everybody else was doing. I wasn't as slick. My shoes didn't look as good. My pants didn't drape as well. My shirt wasn't pressed right. You know, I just didn't feel like I hit the mark. I could have been beyond the mark. But in my mind, I was not achieving once, once again. And uh, when I took these chemicals, that feeling went away. It was gone. That continued until they finally kicked me out of the house after seven door lock changes. I said, you got to go. You're not abiding by our rules and regulations in this house. Find your own place. And I came up with the bright idea of joining Uncle Sam's U.S. Air Force. And they couldn't wait to sign them papers to get me out of there, which they accommodated me. And I went in the Air Force, and I found people just like me, people that like to party, get loaded, gamble, do all those things. People that were attracted, I'm going to give you a scene. When I was like 17 on the streets of Cleveland, Sunday evening or Saturday evening, afternoon summer squall comes up, passes by, streets are wet, gets dark, and the neon lights come on and they're shining off the sidewalk and the wheels of them Cadillacs are spinning. And guys are standing out on the corner drinking that wine and singing that doo-wop. That was me when I was growing up. That was the lifestyle. I was attracted to that. And the ones that really attracted me was them guys standing there nodding, scratching, talking out of the side of their neck, driving the bus from the rear seat, you know. But you see, I wasn't ready to make that committed move yet. I wanted to be a good airman, get back on base. Not get written up. Didn't need to be in no brigade because I couldn't party in there. But I ended up getting kicked out of the Air Force in 1964 from Fairfield Air, uh, Travis Air Force Base in Fairfield, California. And by God, they kicked me to, uh, they kicked me out and I moved to, uh, San Francisco. This was 1964 and San Francisco was like Dodge City in 1880. It was wild. 
The police didn't jack you up. They didn't stop you. You know, dope fiends were standing on corners nodding and slobbing on themselves, and the police would just drive on by. You know, hippies hadn't got there yet. You know, if you were an addict in the Bay Area in those days, if you were in Richmond, Palo Alto, Oakland, Berkeley, didn't care where you were from, you had to come to Fillmore to cop. And that's where I ended up, down on Fillmore in McAllister. And I found my people. And I found my drug of choice. And it included using that harpoon over and over and over again. I got a lot of breaks. You know, we get around here and we tell people, well, I never got any breaks. That's crap. We get a lot of breaks. The system gives us breaks. See, we have to create a jacket before they really start sizing us up and giving us what we deserve. Until that time, we get a lot of breaks. I got a lot of breaks. We think we're brilliant people. Addicts are supposed to be brilliant people. You know, uh, the first brilliant move I made as a dope fiend was I got a beef. I got a little lightweight burglary. Show you how slick I was. All my little con games and stuff. You know, I learned how to play con, but once you get a habit, you can't tie that knot no more because the knot tells you you got to wait here to get this knot tied so you can make this money. But the disease says you got to feed me right now. Let this bit go and go get me some dope. So I, t- I had to stop all of that clean plan. It had to become rough hustling, you know. And I did all those things you do out on the street. And I ended up, like I say, with this brilliant move where they were probably going to give me 90 days in the county jail in San Francisco, which is called San Bruno. So I go in front of this judge, and uh, the DA, the little uh, DA had talked to the public defendant and said, oh, yeah, we'll probably give him 90 days. But see, I didn't want to go to the county jail. I wanted to go where my friends were. And I demanded that they give me an N number, which was a state number to the state drug program, which was six months to seven years. And the judge said, we can accommodate you. They sent a doctor. He checked me. Oh, yeah, he's an addict. Tracks like the B&O. Get him down to CRC. That was the beginning of my spinning out of those places four times. Two numbers. I had two numbers. I had an N number to start with, and I ended up with a B number. And I had an A behind that B, because every time you got violated with a new B, they put the letter behind your number. So B40397A was my last number. In 1978, I got out of prison for the very last time, and I started what I believe was a suicide run. I didn't care anymore. You know, that kid that was 22 years old that was jumping through them skylights, that was carrying off them big TVs and shit, he couldn't hit a lick of a snake anymore. Because what goes when you stay out there long enough is not your mind, it's your heart. So you're going to lose your heart. The disease will take that away from you. Because it demands not all of what you got, but more than all of what you got. I had a guy carrying me. Now, when I say carrying you, you know when your hustle's gone and you're hanging around them shooting galleries waiting for some cottons or hoping somebody will fix you because you're not capable of fixing yourself and you got that degraded, pitiful, demoralized look 
that you know you don't have it anymore. And not only that, you know that they know you don't have it anymore. And then everything they do for you, they do it with disdain. See, I had gotten to that point. Thank God something began to happen for me. I began to, uh, I'd get up in the morning. By this time, I wasn't a slick heroin addict anymore. I don't know about the East Coast or the middle of the country or Hawaii or anywhere else, but in L.A., in the late 70s, they'd gotten these things called pellets, riddling. No things for shooting riddling and coding. We call them ghetto speedballs. But there was $2 a piece, you know. You didn't need to hustle to get $2. That was for pitiful addicts like me. But what happened every morning I'd get up. I remember this morning I got up. I was in a motel down on Jefferson and Paloma. One of the motels where you got to put a quarter in the TV every 15 minutes to watch TV. <laughs> that's chained to the radiator. That if you don't pay the rent, they padlock the room and lock up your shit. I was in one of them places, and I began to cough up a little blood, just a little bit at a time. Every morning, I'd get that riddling rattle, and I'd start coughing. I'd spit into the toilet, and it'd be just a little pink. And within a week, it got a little darker, and then within two weeks, it got a little darker until it was crimson. And I had what I call, to this day, a spiritual awakening. It was not a spiritual awakening. It was a moment of clarity. And that moment of clarity was that this voice inside of me, the one that had talked to me all my life and told me not to do the things that I was doing, that I did them anyway and got beefs, you know that voice that told you to do the right thing? You know, it wasn't Spike Lee. It was that voice in your head, you know, saying, do the right thing. You know, that higher power that I have in my life was telling me, Get to the VA hospital or you're going to die. So I told this guy that was doing all the hustling and carrying me. I had stolen a van from a lady that I worked for when I got out on parole. And uh, I told him, take this hot van and do whatever you want to do with it. But drop me at this liquor store on, on Vernon and Wall. I'm going to sell this jack out of the van for $2 because i got to catch the bus right there. The number 27 in L.A. goes down Vernon, takes you all the way out to the VA hospital on Wilshire. I had 27 cents in my pocket, a pack of camels, and that's all I owned 36 years of my life. And I got to that VA hospital, and he thought because of the description and the, the, how I described the, the circumstances, the coughing, the blood and all that, that I may have tuberculosis. So they immediately shot me into an isolation room. The nurse came back with one of those examination gowns, and she gave it to me. And she said, get out of your clothes and put this gown on. The doctor will be in here in a few minutes. And I, as I began to disrobe and take these clothes off that I'd been living in for weeks, I took off this underwear. And it, it was so filthy that I was embarrassed that another human being might see this. And I took them, I put them in a trash can and put the trash on top of them. And I put on that gown. That was the first time I had felt any feelings in a long time. And they were feelings of shame and disgust of who I had become. But I had no way to change it. So they came in and they diagnosed me with some sort of a, I actually had a blowout in my upper left lobe 
which is the inner walls of my lung. It kind of the cellular walls had kind of deteriorated, and it was it was bleeding internally, and I was spitting this blood up, and I had contracted some kind of fungus up in there. You know, dope fiends can get weird exotic diseases in the middle of Compton. You know, so I had gotten something called as- aspergillosis, which is like a fungus ball that was bouncing around inside this open lesion. So they began to treat me with antibiotics, and uh, I got better quick. But I had a young doctor that recommended I go into a 30-day detox at the other side of the street at the Brentwood VA. And I went in there, and I'd like to tell you that I got clean and I stayed clean, but I didn't. Ten days on the ward, they let me sign off. I went down. In L.A., there's a part of L.A. on the west side called Adams and Hauser. I went down on Adams and Hauser to get some more of them pellets, get me some new rigs. You know, you can't go nowhere without a rig. But I interviewed at a long-term drug program called RTC, and I went down to that program, and I, uh, the day after Labor Day, 1978, September the 5th, I went into that program, and I haven't found it necessary to use since then. I'm going to tell you what happened from that point. The first thing that happened was that when they were shaking me down, oh, by this time they had given me a little VA credit-like certificate to go to the canteen and buy some underwear and a comb and a brush and some toothpaste and a toothbrush and some, uh, you know, I had a little pair of, I had an abscess on my foot, so the only thing I could wear was a pair of them slides, you know, them house shoes. You know, dope things wear house shoes everywhere, you know. Uh, they had a little grab box, a little Goodwill box. I got me some pants and a shirt that fit because I got to tell you, when I went into the hospital, I weighed 147 pounds and I'm 6'1". I looked like somebody that had just walked out of Auschwitz. You know, I was pathetic. So I got some clean clothes and I went into this program and the first thing this guy did, he said, put your little bag over there because that's all I have and that's your little cupboard there and this is your bed. And if you got any other belongings, and I had a little phone book I flipped out there, and he patted me down. He went to walk out the door of the cubicle. And I said, hold it, wait a minute. And I did something I'd never done in my life before. I told on Bob. I said, wait a minute, you missed something. I reached down inside the fly in my pants where you cut it to keep your rig. And I pulled the rig out, and I handed it to him. I said, you missed this. And I gave it to him. I never give nobody my outfit. But I gave him that outfit. And when he got out of there, I said, what the hell I do that for? <laughs> they might have something good down here. Well, they did, but it wasn't what I thought it was. It was in that program that they introduced me to Narcotics Anonymous. Now, in 1978, even in L.A., there was not a lot of Narcotics Anonymous meetings. In fact, we did not have a meeting every night of the week. We had four nights a week they had N.A., and the other nights you had to go to the mother folks. And back in them days, there was no basic text. The only literature we had was a little white book we call Hip Pocket Recovery, because you could stick it in your pocket, and I could almost recite Fat Addict by heart. Because that was the first thing I ever read that talked about addicts to addicts. And we had five pamphlets. That was the full extent of the language and the literature of Narcotics Anonymous in the world. 
It had been translated into Spanish, but that was the only other language it was in. We began to go. I went to my first meeting at uh, Saturday Night Live in Venice. In fact, they allowed the house to go. Second phases could go. You had to support one another. Get the bus, ride down to Venice, go to that meeting. They make you sit at one table. That's the RTC table. And uh, they had screwed up in that house. Somebody had went out and got loaded, got drunk. He didn't get nothing to use, but he got loaded. He got drunk. So they stopped him from going. So we had to petition the director to allow us to go to these meetings. So the first Saturday that they went, I had what they call OD, Officer of the Day Duty, where I had to stay behind and sign everybody out and, you know, security walk the house and all that stuff. So when they got back, I was pissed off. I had a resentment. Because they was talking about this wonderful meeting they'd gone to. And I didn't get to go. But the following week, I got to go. The first speaker I ever heard, I didn't identify with where they'd been, what they'd done, who they were. But I identified with what they felt. And what shocked me more than anything else was that the speaker was a woman. There's a woman named Michelle, and she talked about feeling hopeless, the same kind of feeling I got here with. I got attracted to this program from the very beginning. Narcotics Anonymous was an attractive place because I began to see people, not that I had used with, I have not run into anyone that I cooked with, nobody. But there was a lot of guys that we knew one another, used to identify across the yard, you know. You know, we knew one another from that. People that I walked on the yard with, people that I topped on the yard with but didn't use with, you know, we knew one another. And, and I see these guys come up and share at this podium at this meeting, and some of them had multiple years of recovery. Very few blacks in the fellowship in Los Angeles back then, maybe 15. You know, Bob has always been there. You know, Bob was there. You know, and then there were a few other people that was there when I got there. Some are still there and some are not there anymore. So you couldn't have that excuse. Well, I didn't see nobody that I identify with. You had a couple people you could identify with. I had a sponsor. They didn't allow us to get a sponsor until we came out of that house. So when I came out of that house at 11 months, I got this guy named Frank to sponsor me. Frank D. He was from Atlantic City, New Jersey. Stomp down Dauphine, street hype. He's one of them guys from the era around my era that was steeped in the laurel bebop. You know, I mean, he taught my language. And he taught me how to work them steps. You know, I'd go by there to work the, it wasn't about working the first step. He said, man, I want you to write on one, two, and three. You know, and I don't want less than two pages on either one of them. I want you to read them, read them. Read them, and when you think you understand it, write. You know, he was a pen-in-hand man. So I wrote on every step. Now, when it came to that fourth step, I procrastinated something fierce until he told me, you know what? You get up off your ass and finish that step or get another sponsor. I love this man. I don't want to lose him. So I, you know, I did like you do in high school. I crammed. I crammed about 65 pages of cramming. 
Because he had told me, I tell you what, you just write what you need to write because it's going to be a 50-50. I said, what are you talking about, Frank? He said a 50-50. I said, well, what do you mean? He said it's going to be 50% bullshit and 50% truth. So let's get some of the garbage out and then we can work on the rest. You know. I continue to work these steps. I had a little job working at an electronics firm in West L.A. just bagging up products because I didn't know how to do anything. My my work skills, my education, I had quit high school the last semester of the 12th grade. I had gotten a GED in the penitentiary. I had taken some correspondence courses and a few on-campus courses in the penitentiary. But that was it. And uh, I worked at this small firm, and uh, I got this feeling in my knot one day. I had about two and a half years clean, man. I said, uh, Man, if I don't take care of this amends, because I was up to the ninth step. I'd written this eighth step out, and I began to work that ninth step. And it was the lady that I had stolen that van from. And it was one of those steps where, you know, it was one of them amends where, you know what, Bob, you could go to the penitentiary on this one. Are you willing to go to any lengths to stay clean? Because in my gut, I felt if I didn't make this amends, whether it meant going to jail or not, I would use again. And if I used again, I would die. So I called this woman on a Thursday. Her name was Mrs. Montez. And she had a board and care facility down on 54th and Crenshaw. And she said, hey, how are you? I said, I need to come by and talk to you. She said, well, come on down. I said, well, I can't get there till Saturday morning because I, I got a job and I got to be at work. She said, fine, come on by. It was something in the tone of her voice or in my mind that said, uh-oh, police going to be there. So I talked to my sponsor about it, and I shared about it in a meeting that Thursday night, and I went to bed, and I had nightmares, and I got up the next day all day at work. I was nervous and anxious, and I went to a meeting Friday, called my sponsor again, told him I was going over there the next day, and that Saturday morning, I got up and got my little hoopty and drove it down there and parked about a block away, and I sat there about 20 minutes watching the traffic, watching everybody, and when it looked like I didn't see no movement, I got out of the car and went in there, and when I went in, the way her facility was set up, she had these two outbuildings right by the main sidewalk with the entry gate and steps up to her house, and she'd always sit in this big stuffed chair looking out at the street because she was immobile. She couldn't move anymore. And I went in there, and there was no police. And she held her arms open. And she told me how much she loved me and how much she was proud of what I was doing. And she said something to me that I never forget. And I tell everybody this because it's the truth. When you love someone unconditionally, you forgive them before they do what they do. She said, you'd always been forgiven from the beginning because I loved you from the beginning like a son. I don't care about the material things. It's just that you're on the path you need to be on. At three and a half years clean, I went back to make amends to my parents. And my sponsor had told me at the time, it ain't about what you did. It's about what you need to think about on your way there. Think about your mother going to the post office box, you know, the little mailbox out on the curb little country-like mailbox, and there's a line of them for all the neighbors. And the neighbor next door saying, Mrs. Stewart, 
how's your son Bob doing? And she had to tell him once again, he's in prison. Or once again, she had to say, I don't know, I haven't heard from him in over two years. And that they didn't know I was dead or alive. Because our communication had broken down over those years. And when I went back to make those amends, I hadn't seen these parents in the flesh for 20 years. And God gave me the opportunity to sit down with each one and make amends. And I like to share this with people out there who are coming up on this step. When you make this amends to these folks, you do not have to be in detail. They don't need all the graphic details because they lived them as you did them. Be kind. Be honest. They don't need to hear all that crap. The one thing that happened when I left, I had a moment at the door to say goodbye because I have an adopted brother and he was putting my bags in the car to take me to the airport. And as my parents were standing at the doorway, there was a flickering of a, of a sign in their eyes. You know how you can look in someone's eyes and you see this emotion just flicker just in a millisecond. But what that sign and what that emotion was, was that I knew that they knew that I was safe. They knew that I was happy. They knew that I found the path of redemption. I didn't find it where they had it, but I found it in Narcotics Anonymous. At five and a half years clean, I got a call from my brother, and they said, Bobby, you need to come home. Mommy died yesterday. And I went home. And when I sat in the front pew as the minister was doing the obituary sermon for my mother, he said, I'm entitling this sermon for Mrs. Stewart. The best is yet to come. And he began to discount and account all the things that I had in my mind. You know, I had this image of my stepmother that it just didn't match up. Because I'm one of them kids that was ashamed of his parents. I don't know if you were, but I was. You know, I had older parents. And my mom didn't look like Danny's mother. And my dad didn't look like John's father. You know, to me, they was old fogies. You know, they just wasn't as slick as everybody else's parents. And I was ashamed. And then I was really ashamed because when I was 13, my mom said, I'm, not, I'm tired of being a domestic and maiden for these folks. I'm going to get a license and raise foster kids. And she started bringing in all these foster kids. And I was ashamed of that. And I was sitting in that front row and I started crying tears of joy because for the first time, man, I was proud of my mother. I understood what she had done. I understood her passion. I understood that what she was doing was exactly what we do. Reach out and touch someone. Help those that cannot help themselves. And I had some pride. And I moved on in my life. And then... Ever so often I'd go back. I never was close with my brother or my father. And then all of a sudden my father started to deteriorate mentally. And my brother took him in and took care of him. And he called me one time and he said, I need you to sign a power of attorney so I can take care of dad. And you know what? He did. 
He took care of my father. I went back one time and visited. My father knew me the first day, but he didn't know me any time after that. Second and third day, he said, you Mrs. So-and-so's son, ain't you? He didn't know who I was. And he continued to deteriorate. And then in 1999, he passed away. And my brother called me. He told me, hey, you know what? Dad passed away and, and it was two weeks ago, and I, I want to tell you what I did. He said, I didn't want to tell you, but nine months ago I had to put him in a home because I just couldn't change his diapers anymore. I just couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't handle it. And I needed someone to take care of him. And the last three, three months he was alive, he was living in a fetal position. So I didn't want him in an open casket. I wanted him to, to die with some dignity. So he was cremated. I cremated him, and I interned him next to mommy. I said, that's all I could do. And he said, you know, I hope you're not mad at me. I said, how can I be mad at you, man? You, you've done things for him and her that I couldn't do because you're the son I was incapable of being because this disease kept me out there as long as it could. I'd like to talk about what we do in Narcotics Anonymous, too. We get here. We get clean. We get jobs. And then we look for the elusive her. Or him. You know, first of all, the first thing we do is we, come, we become Romeo and Romeette. That means we just become sluts around here. And then we get tired of making them amends. Because if you stay here and you want to stay clean, you've got to do something about that problem. Misusing other people's emotions and feelings. And then you find her. It didn't matter I had six and a half years clean. She had 72 days. She lived in San Jose. I lived in L.A. That did not constitute a 13th step in my mind. But anyway, a little, wrong, a little longer down the road, uh, we hook up. So when you get a year clean, we'll get married. She got a year clean. The next day we were married. One of them Reno marriages. Everything went well for a while. I like to talk about what happens in Narcotics Anonymous when you get successful. You see, everything went well. Good jobs, home, dogs, cats, fish, birds. Some people get boats, motorcycles, trucks, all that shit. But what happens is that we begin to stagnate. We begin to kind of drift away from being a part of the fellowship. You see, there is another fellowship that talks about resentments being the number one killer. But for me, it is not written in the language of Narcotics Anonymous or the literature. But for Bob, I believe the number one killer in, in NA is complacency. When the Monday night meeting gets supplanted by NYPD Blue, when your Thursday night candlelight gets superseded by CSI, you know, we got everything today, even Devo, but Dopey's got to be there. They might miss something. The machine might break, you know. So we get complacent. I had a commitment at a penitentiary that I had done some time in for 13 years, and that commitment saved my butt during this period of, you know, extreme complacency. 
But my partner didn't fare as well. She relapsed at ten and a half years clean. And I got through that. And we got through that. I put her in treatment twice. And she got back on track. And she put another five and a half years together. And then when I had, I had over 22 years clean, she went out again. And she went out and stayed out a good while. And this time it got crazy. You know, forged prescriptions, cases, DUIs, judges, courts, all of that stuff. But I stayed as long as I could stay because you know what? Who am I to say what it takes? But there comes a time when you have to move on. You have to. And you have to do it with some kind of love and compassion. And I hope that's what happened because I had to move on. You know. My life has changed today. I have a new relationship in my life today. You know, uh, Narcotics Anonymous has given me everything I have. I've got to tell you this, because I don't flaunt this. I have been one of your special workers at the Narcotics Anonymous World Service Office for almost 21 years. And that has been a privilege. But that is not Bob's recovery. Bob's recovery is I go to meetings, I work some steps, I better. I'm of service. I just finished a commitment as a secretary at a meeting. See, if it means me making coffee at the Tuesday night meeting, that's what Bob does. You know, I stay out of regional and area commitments because it's a conflict of interest as far as I'm concerned. Because they'll think I got some inside information and I ain't giving up shit. You know. Then we'll just have a bunch of resentments, you know. So just let me make some coffee or get a speaker or speak or whatever. Let me be a sponsor. Let me try to share this message of recovery. I'm going to tell you something about the chapter in my life that uh, is going on today. There is a lot of contentment in my life today. You know, I was diagnosed with... Uh, Pepsi in 1992, but I have been fortunate enough not to have to go on that treatment yet. It's not saying that I won't ever have to, but I realized that the stress that was going on in my life, and it proved itself in the test that was being run, is that the stress that I had going on in my life had driven my viral loads out of the goddamn ceiling. You know, but as soon as I made that decision to change my life and to move on, things began to change physiologically for me. And right today, I, I'm doing okay. I'm doing fine. You know, I have met so many wonderful people in this fellowship. You see, it's the people that count. Because it's the people that saved my ass over and over and over again. Those people that I thought didn't care about me were the ones that raised me up, picked me up, and carried me when I needed it the most. I want to put a closing chapter on a part of my life that I shared about. I shared about being ashamed of these foster kids. When I had about three or four years clean, one of these foster kids that my mother had raised came into my life. He was out in L.A. working at a men's clothing store, Z&Z, and uh, he broke up with his little girlfriend, and uh, he, didn't have, he didn't have nowhere to stay, and I, I let him come and stay with me. 
But I could tell, boy, this boy was headed for deep trouble. You know, he didn't want to pay his bill. He didn't want to pay the phone bill that he owed me. He didn't want to do this. So I just told him, I said, you know what, boy, you got to get up and get out of here because I ain't carrying you. So when I kicked him out, I kicked him straight to Hawaii because he got a job over here. Got a hell of a job. A couple years later, after I got married and was living in Ontario, I get a call one night. People's after him. They after me, man. They're going to kill me. I owe him some big money. I said, oh, yeah? So come on out here. Meet me at this Denny's over here. I wasn't about to bring him in my house. You know. He wasn't ready yet. You know. So we meet at Denny's and... Uh, he said, man, I need a couple hundred dollars. I said, you do. I said, here's $40 on a meeting schedule. Get your ass to a meeting. You need some help, and I can't help you. Yeah. I didn't hear from him anymore. I got here Wednesday evening, and I got a voicemail message on my phone from my office. It was one of my coworkers, and he said, uh, your foster brother, Eddie, is trying to get a hold of you. And he gave me a phone number here in Hawaii. And how this happened was some people that were in the fellowship went into his little Internet cafe he's got over here to use the Internet. And they, he saw the T-shirts. He said, you, you people with any? They told him, yeah. So what are you guys doing here? He said, well, we have our world convention at the convention center. He said, well, where are you from? They told me from L.A. He said, he said, I know this is crazy, but uh, do you know a guy named Bob Stewart? And he said, yeah. <laughs> he works at the World Service Office. Here's his phone number. Call him. So he calls, and I'm not there, but my coworker picks the message up, sends me the message. Well, Yesterday morning, he came by so we could sit down and have coffee. I hadn't seen this kid in 20 years. He went to the penitentiary. He did seven years. He's been abstinent for the last 11. You never know what turn your life is going to do in this fellowship. You never know where your recovery is going to take you. But I do know this. You don't have to use no matter what. You never have to use again. One day at a time. Sometimes it's a minute. Sometimes it's an hour at a time. But you don't have to pick up. See, one of the first lessons they taught me when I got here was that if you don't pick up, you will not get loaded. It's just that simple. I'm going to put one other post note on this, and then I'm going to close. You never know when your ninth step is done. I am a person who believes that the ninth step is never done. Because we can't remember all them people we hurt. If you like me, you blank it out until it comes time to deal with it. I told you about my dad passing away and my brother interning him with my mom. About a year after that happened, I went back to do a conference in Columbus, Ohio, 
and I scheduled a couple extra three days to go up to Cleveland and visit with him and some relatives, the ones that were still alive, because they all just about dead now. So when I got there, I talked to him, and I said, uh, leave me directions to the cemetery. So he got up to go to work the next morning. He's a FedEx driver, and he left it on the kitchen table for me. And I got the directions, and I went out to this cemetery near Warrensville. And I go to the office of the cemetery after I stopped at this flower shop and got a couple bouquets to put on the, the headstones or the grave. And I go in the office, and the lady says, well, the plot's over here, and she shows it to me on the little map of the cemetery. And I walk out there, and I don't find it. And I go back. And she says, no, it's there. Just, you, you went to the right spot. Go by that tree. I go back and I don't find it. So I go back and then she takes me like a little kid and takes me out here and she points down. And when I looked down, she had turned and headed back to the office. When I looked down, there was no headstone. And the first feelings that I had was anger. I was angry. I was upset. How could this happen? And then I started to repeat the serenity prayer. And I said it a few times. And then it came to me. Bob, your nine steps not done. And I went in that office and I ordered a double headstone for them. And I told her, when it's in place, I want you to take a picture and send it to me. Because I don't know when I'll get back here. But I'll make sure that this gets done. You see... You never have to use no matter what. You never have to use again. But you do have to do a few things around here. You have to reach out to the addict who still suffers. You have to go to meetings. You have to be of service. You've got to stand for what you believe or you'll go for anything. And if it ain't right, it ain't right and say it ain't right. And if it is right, give them credit for doing it right. Don't be beyond that. We're not perfect. I'm not. I'm Bob. I'm an addict. Thank you for letting me share. That was a great share. Thanks for 12-stepping me, Bob. Uh, I've asked Greg from D.C. to read just for today. All right, Greg. I'm an addict. My name is Greg. Just for today, tell yourself, just for today, my thoughts will be on my recovery, living and enjoying life without the use of drugs. Just for today. I will have faith in someone in NA who believes in me and wants to help me in my recovery. Just for the day, I will have a program. I will try to follow it to the best of my ability. Just for the day through NA, I will try to get a better perspective on my life. Just for the day, I will be unafraid. My thoughts will be on my new associations, people who are not using and have found a new way of life. So long as I follow that way... I have nothing to fear. All right. Yeah, man. Yeah, brother. Thank you, man. I'll give you...